to the Word for Today, featuring the Bible teaching of Pastor Chuck Smith, founder of the Calvary Chapel Movement. This in-depth one-hour radio broadcast features a verse-by-verse study through the entire Bible, as originally taught by Pastor Chuck. Our study today picks up in the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 8, as we follow along with today's lesson. The power to be a witness for Jesus Christ, that is, the power to live in such a way that your life becomes a reflection of Jesus. That's what a witness is. And it is interesting that in Antioch, the people began to call them Christians because they were like Jesus. And and thus the term Christians was not one that they took upon themselves, but it was a term that was given to them by the press and the media at the time uh, because they were like Christ. And it's sort of a derisive term, uh, just like they used to call us Jesus freaks. Uh, But uh, it's because, you know, we're we're crazy about Jesus and uh, we're in love with him. And and so uh, they gave us the term Jesus freak. And uh, thus the term Christian was given to them in Antioch because They were seeking to live like Christ. Now, that is God's purpose and desire for us, that our lives be a reflection of Jesus Christ. He is our example, Peter said, that we should follow in his steps. But we can't do that in our own ability or power. I cannot forgive I cannot love. I cannot be kind and considerate as Jesus was without the power of the Holy Spirit. I can't do it in myself. But through the power of the Holy Spirit, He transforms me. He not only transforms, but He conforms me into the image of Jesus. Paul said, And we all with unveiled faces as we behold the glory of the Lord are being changed from glory to glory into that same image by his spirit that is working in us. And so you're going to receive this dynamic, this power, and you will be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and all of Judea, and in Samaria, and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. And as we look at the book of Acts, it is the story of the witness of the church, first of all in Jerusalem, until they had filled the city with the doctrine of Jesus. And then as the result of persecution on into Judea, as they went everywhere preaching the word, and then continuing as Philip went into Samaria and preached Christ unto them, and ultimately as Paul took the gospel of Jesus Christ uh, into uh, Asia Minor, into Greece, and over into Europe to Rome, and Matthew over to India, 
and uh, the, as the gospel spread throughout the world. Now, I believe that the Lord had a pattern here. You start out where you are, you move into the surrounding territories, and then you expand further, and ultimately the witness goes into all the world. As the Lord began to work here in Calvary Chapel, we were first of all establishing the work here and the Spirit of God began to uh, add and, and we began to affect this area around here as uh, God was blessing and prospering the church. And then others who were here began to go out uh, to Judea. Uh, Jeff Johnson to Downey, Raul Reese to West Covina, uh, Greg Laurie to Riverside, uh, and uh, we began to see the gospel expand. Mike McIntosh down to uh, San Diego, uh, Chuck Jr. out to Yucca Valley, Palm Springs, and then later on down to Dana Point. And, and we began to reach our Judea. Then as God continued to bless, we began to spread a little further into Samaria as uh, Wayne Taylor went to Oregon, uh, Lewis, I mean, he went to Washington, Seattle, uh, John Corson to Oregon, uh, Lewis Neely to Sacramento, uh, Skip Heisick to Albuquerque, uh, Joe Foch to Philadelphia, Bill Gallatin to uh, New York, and uh, Tom Stipe to Denver. We began to spread out into Samaria, and then we began to send out missionaries all over the world. Until tonight, we have missionaries uh, all over the world uh, that are there uh, being supported and representing Calvary Chapel and the ministry that God began here. Now, the interesting thing is that Mike went to San Diego. Uh, that's our Judea, but it became Mike's Jerusalem. And so Mike began to fill San Diego. And then he began to spread out into his Judea. And he has started over 21 churches in San Diego County. And then he began to spread out into uh, his Samaria. And then he started the mission works in um, uh, Mexico and uh, over in uh, the Caribbean and, and uh, began to spread uh, the ministry into the world. Skip Isaac went to Albuquerque and that became his Jerusalem. It was our Samaria. And Skip began to reach Albuquerque. He has the largest church in Albuquerque, over 9,000 on Sunday morning services uh, there in Albuquerque. And uh, he then began to uh, start churches in Clovis and uh, Santa Fe as he began to reach his Judea and then began to uh, reach over into Arizona, his Samaria. And then he started a mission in uh, India. He has over 300 mission fellowships in India and, and reaching the whole world. And, and so every place it's goes, that becomes the Jerusalem and it spreads from there into the Judeas and into the Samarias and into the uttermost parts. Um, our young people went over 
Uh, Mike Harris went over to Subotica, Yugoslavia. And uh, that was Mike's Jerusalem. Uh, but he began then to start up other fellowships in Baia, Hungary, and, and in other communities there in Yugoslavia as they reached their Judea and into their Samaria. And uh, it's interesting that we have a couple of young fellows from the church in Subotica who are now missionaries over here in the United States uh, <laughs> as they're reaching the uttermost parts of the world. Uh, they are the youth leaders of the Redlands Calvary Chapel, and they bring the most turned-on young people to camp and uh, are doing a fabulous job in the ministry to the youth there in, uh, in, in, Sandy, in, in Redlands so that every place it goes, it just spreads sort of like a cancer from there uh, into the surrounding areas and goes out from there ultimately into the world. So that's God's plan of exponential type of explosive growth of the church as the pattern is followed wherever it lands, that becomes the Jerusalem, and then it begins from there to reach the Judeas, the Samarias, and the uttermost parts. And that's happened in, in each of the Calvary chapels around the country. Uh, that became the, the center for a new explosion of, of the gospel reaching the territories around them, and on and out and out. Glorious the way God has worked and is working. And so when Jesus had spoken these things, while they were beholding him, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. I believe it was the Shekinah cloud, the cloud that led the children of Israel in the wilderness, the cloud that descended in the Holy of Holies of the of the. Uh, tabernacle and of the temple, that it just enshrouded Christ, and he uh, was received out of their sight. And as they stood there gazing into heaven, behold, there were two men who stood by them in white apparel, and they said, ye men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? For this same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. This Jesus is coming again. Now he was on the Mount of Olives when he was taken up into heaven. When he comes back, he will come back and set his foot in that day on the Mount of Olives. And even as he was taken up visibly out of their sight, he will be coming again visibly. Don't let anybody tell you that he's got a secret coming. He went into secret chambers. He's now governing the world from this secret headquarters. Not the case. Uh, when he comes, every eye shall see him. And they also that pierced him shall mourn. And they shall look upon him whom they have pierced. And it won't be some kind of a secret uh, cloak and dagger kind of a thing. He's coming and all of the world will know and be aware when he returns in power and great glory to establish God's kingdom upon the earth. And so the promise of the coming again of Jesus Christ, the promise that we still look forward to and we hope and anticipate that it will happen very soon. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, 
which is from Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey, or about two-thirds of a mile. And they went, when they were come in, they went into an upper room where abode Peter and James and John and Andrew and Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew, Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon Zelotes, and Judas the brother of James. Uh, the 11, of course, Judas Iscariot is absent because he has committed suicide. Let me give you just a little thumbnail sketch of the disciples who were called apostles. Peter, given the name Simon, but he was renamed by Jesus Petros, which means a little stone. He was brought to the Lord by his brother Andrew, and he was chosen by Jesus as one to be in the inner circle. He saw the miracle of the raising of Jairus' daughter. He saw the transfiguration of Jesus. And he was one who was drawn closer in the Garden of Gethsemane to be near her to Jesus as he prayed. He was an eager, excitable man. He was the one who drew the sword in the garden to defend Jesus. And he was vacillating until he was, re- until he was baptized with the power of of the Holy Spirit. He became a spokesman and a leader in the early church, and according to tradition, he was crucified in Rome upside down because when they came to crucify him, they said he was not worthy to be crucified as his Lord and requested to be crucified upside down. Andrew was the brother of Peter, and he gained his reputation as the one who was always bringing others to Jesus. He brought Peter to Jesus. When the 5,000 were there on the hillside, he was the one that brought the little boy with the five loaves and two fish to Jesus. Uh, When the Grecians came saying we would see Christ, he was the one who came to Jesus and informed him that the Greeks were there and wanted to see him. According to tradition, he brought the gospel to Asia Minor, to Greece, and to Scythia or Russia. When he arrived in Edessa, he was crucified on a cross where the two ends were transfixed into the ground, and hence you get the term St. Andrew's Cross. James was the brother of John, a son of Zebedee, and he was called by Jesus the son of thunder. Uh, He was part of the inner circle with Peter and John, and his mother asked Jesus if he could sit by the side of Jesus when Jesus came into the kingdom. He was ready to call down fire from heaven on those who did not receive Jesus. And (laughs) son of thunder. When Herod Agrippa was appointed governor of Judea, he wanted to gain the support of the Jews, and so he began to persecute the church, and he had James beheaded, and he cast Peter into prison. And uh, it is told that the executioner of James was so impressed by his bravery and his courage that he determined to accept Christ and fell at the feet of James, accepted the Lord so that James would not be executed alone. And so 
According to the story, both the executioner and James were beheaded together. John was known as the Beloved. He was the brother of James and the author, of course, of one of the Gospels and three of the Epistles, plus the book of Revelation. He always sought to be close to Jesus. He leaned on Jesus' breast at the Last Supper. He asked to be close to Jesus in the kingdom. His mother's name was Salome, and it is thought that she was a sister to Mary, the mother of Jesus, which would mean that John and James were actually cousins to Jesus. He had a home in Jerusalem, and he took Mary, the mother of Jesus, into his home after the crucifixion. He lived in Jerusalem until its destruction, at which time he moved to Ephesus. Among his pupils were Polycarp and Papias and Ignatius, early church leaders, who became the bishops of the churches in Smyrna, Hierapolis, and Antioch. And according to tradition, he was brought to Rome by Domitian, uh, that horrible Roman emperor, and was placed in a cauldron of boiling oil. But he survived by a miracle and was banished to the island of Patmos, where he wrote the book of Revelation. And upon his, the death of Domitian, he was released from the exile by Nerva, and he returned to Ephesus, where he died a natural death, the only one of the apostles to die a natural death. Philip, we are told that Jesus found Philip and called Philip to follow him. Philip in turn found Nathanael and said, Come, we have found the one that Moses and the prophets wrote about, Jesus of Nazareth. Nathanael questioned if anything could, good could come out of Nazareth, and Philip said, Come and see. Jesus asked Philip where they could buy enough bread to feed the 5,000. And uh, it was to Philip that the Greeks came saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. It was Philip who said, Lord, if you'll just show us the Father, it will suffice us. And according to tradition, he took the gospel to Upper Asia, was active in establishing the church at Hierapolis and Pergia. He was scourged, cast into prison, and then crucified in 54 AD. Bartholomew was also known as Nathaniel the one that Philip brought to Jesus. He was brought to Christ by Philip, and he was from Cana. And there are those who believe that that is why Jesus happened to be in Cana of Galilee for the wedding, not that of Nathaniel, but of Nathaniel's friend. According to tradition, he took the gospel to many countries and translated the gospel of Matthew into the language of India, and it is there that he spent his life until he was cruelly beaten and crucified. Matthew was also known as Levi. He was a tax collector when Jesus called him. And he prepared a great feast for Jesus, invited all of his tax collector friends. And he wrote the gospel of Matthew. He is called the son of Alphaeus, which could possibly relate him to James the Less, who was also known as the son of of Alphaeus. It is thought that he wrote the Gospel of Matthew first in Hebrew and then translated it into Greek. He took the Gospel to Parthia and Ethiopia, where he was slain with an halbred in the city of 
uh, Nadaba around 60 AD. Thomas, <laughs> called Didymus, which means twin, uh, probably would be classified as a melancholy. He was able to see the dark side of everything. Uh, when Jesus told the disciples that Lazarus was dead, but we're going to go uh, to wake him from his sleep, uh, Thomas said, well, let's go that we might die with him also. And uh, when Jesus told the disciples that he was going to prepare a place for them and where he was going, they knew, and the way they knew, Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? When reports came that Jesus was risen from the dead, Thomas said, I won't believe that until I can see for myself. And uh, he was uh, with the disciples in Galilee when Peter said, I'm going fishing. He was one of those that said, I'll go with you. And uh, he carried the gospel to Syria, to Parthia, to Persia, and on over to India. And in southern India today, they have the Church of St. Thomas. It is one of the largest gospel works in India, and they actually trace the church's origin back to Thomas. There was James, the son of Alphaeus, which, of course, is to be uh, separate from uh, James, the brother of John. And as we've already noted, uh, Levi, or Matthew, was also known as the son of Alphaeus, and so it's possible that James and Matthew were brothers. He is known as James the Less, which doesn't mean less in, in uh, degree, but he was smaller. The, the word indicates he was probably a small man. His mother Mary was one of the women who was standing by the cross at the time that Jesus was crucified. Uh, and she was also one of the women who came early to the tomb. Uh, tradition has it that he took the gospel to Egypt. Uh, it would seem uh, that uh, he is not the same James that took a early place of leadership in the church uh, and wrote the epistle of James. Then there was Simon the Zealot, or Simon Zelotes, and he belonged evidently to that radical group of nationalists known as the Zealots. And it's interesting to see what opposites Jesus brought together. Matthew, a tax collector, was considered a collaborator by the Jews and, and thus a traitor to uh, the Jews. And here is one of these zealots who vowed to kill every Roman that they got a chance to kill. And so we know very little about him, but tradition has it that he took the gospel to Africa and later to Britain where he was crucified. Then there was Judas, who is defined as not Iscariot. And he also was known as Thaddeus and Libius. And so you read of Thaddeus or Libius, and that is this other Judas. He is called here uh, by Luke the brother of James, but we don't know which James. Possibly James the Less, which would make him also then the son of Alphaeus, and a brother of Matthew. So it could be that you had uh, brothers, Peter and, uh, and Andrew, brothers James and John, and brothers Matthew, James, 
and Judas. Whether he is the author of the book of Jude is not known for certain. Uh, it is uh, thought that the author of the book of Jude was the brother, he said he was the brother of James and so would make him a half-brother to Jesus. We'll deal with that later on. Uh, it was Judas who asked Jesus why he would manifest himself to the disciples, but why didn't he manifest himself to the world? He was crucified in Edessa in 72. And then, of course, there was Judas Iscariot, uh, the one that Jesus knew from the beginning would betray him. He was allowed to carry the purse and thus had the responsibility to pay the bills, but he was thieving out of the purse. He was the one who objected to the costly ointment being uh, poured out on Jesus' feet. Uh, he plotted with the chief priest to betray Christ for 30 pieces of silver. He led the soldiers to arrest Jesus in the garden, uh, betrayed him with a kiss or identified him with a kiss. Uh, he brought the money back to the priest, threw it on the temple floor, went out and hung himself. The rope broke. He fell to the ground and his body burst open. And so you have sort of a thumbnail sketch of those men that Jesus called to be apostles. And so here we have... 10 of them, uh, or we have uh, rather 11 of them, Judas Iscariot is absent, having committed suicide. So in verse 15, in those days Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples and said, and the number of them were about 120, men and brethren, the scripture must needs have been fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit by the mouth of David spake before concerning Jews. Judas, which was a guide to them that took Jesus. Two things I want you to notice. Number one, the confidence in the scriptures. Because it was written, it has to come to pass. They had great confidence in the word of God. The scriptures must needs be fulfilled. If God said it, it's got to happen that great confidence in the word of God. Secondly, the recognition that it was inspired by the Holy Spirit, which the Holy Spirit by the mouth of David spake. So they believed in the inspiration of the scriptures and the inerrancy of the scriptures. These are two basic fundamental beliefs that we need to have. Number one, that all scripture was given by inspiration of God. David spoke by the Holy Spirit, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And if it is in the word of God, it's inerrant. It will happen. The scripture must needs be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Holy Spirit through David. And so uh, those important basic, foundational beliefs that we must have concerning the word of God. That David spoke before concerning Judas, which was a guide to those that took Jesus, for he was numbered with us, and he obtained a part of this ministry. He, he was a part of us. Now this man purchased a field with the reward of iniquity. Uh, in the Old Testament, 
there was a prophecy that said, uh, name the price by which I was prized to them. And so he said, they measured out the 30 pieces of silver. And I said, a fine price to pay. Cast it uh, in the temple uh, to the, and, and uh, they would use it to buy a potter's field. And so uh, Judas fulfilled that. He brought the money back and said, I betrayed innocent blood. They said, that's your problem. And he threw the money down in the temple and said, it's your problem. And he went out and hung himself. They did have a problem. They said, we can't put it back in the treasury. It's blood money. What shall we do? And so they decided to buy a potter's field to bury the poor people. And thus, the prophecy of the Old Testament was fulfilled in the betrayal of Christ for 30 pieces of silver, the money later thrown down in the temple, and then used to buy a potter's field prophecy was completely fulfilled. So this man purchased a field with the reward of his iniquity. That is the 30 pieces of silver that he got for his dastardly deed of betraying Christ. And falling headlong, as I say, he hung himself, probably jumped, tied the rope, jumped out of the tree, and uh, it snapped, and uh, he fell onto the ground, and he fell headlong, Uh, Head first, he burst asunder in the midst and all of his bowels gushed out. An untimely end for a man who had done such a dastardly thing. And it was known unto all the dwellers in Jerusalem inasmuch as the field is called in their proper tongue uh, Esadama, that is to say, the field of blood. For it was written in the book of Psalms, let his habitation be desolate, and let no man dwell therein, and his bishopric let another take. Now, it is interesting that Peter had a good working knowledge of the scripture. Here are two obscure psalms. By the Holy Spirit, Peter is interpreting these psalms to refer to Judas Iscariot. We would not know that they were prophetic of Judas Iscariot, except it was interpreted by the Holy Spirit through Peter to be referring to Judas Iscariot. When you read these psalms in context, you just don't pick it up. But Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit and with his great knowledge of the scriptures, uh, saw that these were actually prophetic concerning Judas. Let his habitation be desolate, no man dwell therein, and his bishopric let another take. Therefore, of the men which have been Accompanying with us all of the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John unto the same day that he was taken up from us, we must ordain one to be a witness with us of his resurrection. So in choosing a, a, a man to become an apostle to take the place of Judas Iscariot, the requirement was He had to be with us from the beginning. That is, the baptism of Jesus by John traveled with us the whole while and who can bear witness to the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That was the requirement for apostleship uh, by them. Uh, So they chose two. Now, there were many disciples of those Jesus told chose 12 that he called the apostles. But there were many disciples of Jesus. 
So of those that had been with him all the way along, they chose two, uh, uh, Barsabas, Joseph called Barsabas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, Lord, you know the hearts of all men, and show which of these two you have chosen, that they may take a part of this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they gave forth their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Now, it is my opinion that casting lots is not really an excellent way of determining the will of the Lord. Uh, It's sort of drawing straws. Uh, And uh, I think that they made a mistake that we often make, and that is giving God limited options. Uh, Lord, do you want me to do this or that? Well, maybe he has something entirely different that you haven't even thought of, uh, but we limit God by the options that we offer him. And it would appear that Lord had another choice for apostle, and that was Paul, and came along later. And, of course, as we get into the book of Acts, we're going to find an awful lot about Paul and his ministry. But what do you know about Matthias? This is the first and last time you ever heard of the guy. (laughs) Evidently didn't do anything of note. Uh, Interestingly enough, as they listed the, uh, and we jumped over it, as they listed the disciples, uh, it, it makes mention that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was also there. But also very interesting, that's the last mention that you have of Mary. Nothing more in the epistles, nothing more in the book of Acts. She didn't have an important place in the church. They didn't have to go to Mary and say, pray for me or ask your son to intercede for me. Uh, she didn't have any, any position at all uh, of, of, of importance. This is just the end of it. She was there at the, uh, at, with the group that was waiting for the Holy Spirit, uh, but not in any uh, position of authority, power, or uh, not at all considered as a co-redemptress with Jesus. And so uh, this is just the end of the story of Mary. And uh, that's the last mention of her in the Bible. And this happens to be the first and last mention of Matthias. And so we don't know anything else about him except that he was selected by this uh, dubious method of casting lots uh, to determine uh, who would take the place of Judas Iscariot. So that gives us sort of an introduction into the marvelous work of the Holy Spirit that will begin in chapter 2 as we find the gift of God being given to the church as a abiding possession until the church is taken out of the world and uh, the powers of the Antichrist take over. So um, we'll go on into the book of Acts, chapter at a time, and study the exciting work of Jesus Christ through the lives of the apostles. Let's turn to the second chapter of the book of Acts as we continue our journey through the Bible. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, there were three major Jewish holidays that 
it was a requirement that every adult male within 20 miles of Jerusalem would have to come and present himself to God. If he lived more than 20 miles from Jerusalem, he was to come as often as was practical. And thus at these three major feasts, there would be people, Jewish people, and those who had proselyted into the Jewish faith who would come from all over the world to celebrate these three major feast days. The first one, of course, was the Feast of Passover in which they were remembering God's deliverance of their fathers out of Egypt. Then there was the Feast of Pentecost, which came 50 days after the day after the first day of the unleavened bread feast. The feast of Passover was also attached to the feast of unleavened bread. It began the first day after Passover and went for uh, seven days. And the first day of the feast of unleavened bread was a Sabbath day. And thus the first day after the Sabbath day of the unleavened bread, they would count 50 days, seven weeks of weeks. And then the first day after the 49, the seven weeks of weeks, would be the 50th day, and it was called the Feast of Pentecost, or First Fruits. Uh, It was the offering unto God the thanksgiving for the harvest. Uh, At the first part of June, they harvested the winter grain crops. And thus it was a celebration, much like our thanksgiving, in giving thanks to God uh, for the uh, gathering in of the grain crops. And so it was on this Feast of Pentecost, the second of the major feasts. The third one, of course, was Uh, the Feast of uh, Tabernacles, or Sukkoth, and that happened in uh, the fall. This Feast of Pentecost was usually uh, the best attended of the feast because the traveling conditions were better at this time of the year, especially if they were traveling from uh, areas in the Roman Empire Uh, it was easier to travel in June uh, than at any other time of the year. During the time of the feast of uh, the, uh, in October or the latter part of September, it's usually quite hot, Uh, usually sort of cold at the feast of Passover, uh, especially traveling on the Mediterranean. So this was the one that was usually the best attended. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, the 50th day after the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they were all with one accord in one place. Now, in the latter part of the Gospel according to Luke, uh, we read in the last verse of Luke's Gospel, and they were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. So, Uh, that is 
while they were waiting for the promise of the Holy Spirit. So it is quite possible that they were gathered in one of the rooms of the temple, one accord, one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. Now here he calls it a house. So it uh, leaves uh, the question of whether or not the, the experience took place in a house or in the temple. But the fact that thousands of people gathered uh, because 3,000 people accepted the Lord, uh, it would be hard to imagine that taking place in a house. Uh, but uh, they're in the area of the temple, the temple precincts. There appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Notice there are different supernatural phenomena accompanying the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the church. One, there was a sound like a mighty rushing wind, sort of the sound of a hurricane. Secondly, there were these cloven tongues of fire that appeared above their heads upon each of them. Thirdly, they were all speaking with other tongues as the Spirit gave them the ability or the utterance, or as the Catholic Douay version says, as the Spirit prompted their speech. The word other tongues in Greek is glossialia, and it means an unknown tongue, that is, unknown to the person who is speaking. They began to speak in sounds that they did not understand. It was unknown to them. Uh, speaking in tongues is a gift that is mentioned in the Bible. Here is the first instance of its exercise and interestingly enough, of the three phenomena that accompanied the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the speaking in tongues is the only one that was repeated, and it was repeated on several occasions. And then Paul devotes a full chapter in Corinthians predominantly to the subject of speaking in tongues. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. The interesting thing is that though to them it was glossialia, a language they did not understand, yet those people who were there from all over the world to worship the Lord at this feast, they understood and they marveled and said, how is it they, that we, these people are all Galileans and yet they are speaking in our own languages and there the Greek word is dialectus from which we get our word dialects. They're speaking in our own dialects. 
And so they wondered and were amazed that they heard these people speaking in their own dialects. And there are some 15 different dialects mentioned here. And uh, yet they realized that all of the people that were speaking were Galileans. So this was the phenomena that attracted the attention throughout Jerusalem. Now, uh, it said, And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men of every nation under heaven. And when this was noised abroad, the this there is something that we don't know precisely, is the this, the noise like a rushing mighty wind. Very possibly that that is what attracted people's attention. Years ago, when we were living in Huntington Beach, one morning I was awakened by a sound like a rushing mighty wind. It was a roar. And it continued until I finally got up and got dressed to go out and see what was causing this sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it happened about four blocks from our house Uh, A well blew in and uh, the gas was blowing and the oil and everything else and it was quite a roar, but uh, I wasn't the only one there. I think practically everyone in Huntington Beach uh, was there watching this gusher as it was blowing in and and the sound is what attracted us all. Uh, You hear a sound like that and you're curious what in the world is causing the sound and you go out to search it out. So it could be that it was the sound of the mighty rushing wind that attracted their attention and drew them. Or it could be that, uh, you know, news travels very fast. People said, something's happening down here. A bunch of people speaking in, in you know, strange languages and, and all, you know, something's going on. There are little uh, things like fire on each of their heads and they're speaking in these languages, you know. And uh, so... Whatever it was, it attracted a crowd, a very large crowd indeed. But they were confounded because every man heard them speak in his own language or dialect. And they were all amazed. So notice the different reactions. They were confounded, they were amazed, and they marveled. As they said one to another, Behold, are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? How is it then that we hear every man in our own dialect wherein we were born? And then it gives you the different dialects of the Parthians, the Medes, the Elamites, the dwellers in Mesopotamia, in Judea, and in Cappadocia, and Pontus, and Asia, Pergia. Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya, and strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretes and Arabians, we do hear them speak in our own dialects, and what are they speaking? The wonderful works of God. Now Paul, in explaining the gift of speaking in tongues in 1 Corinthians 14, declares that he that speaketh in an unknown tongue, the glossialia, speaketh not unto man, howbeit in the spirit 
he is speaking unto God divine mysteries or secrets. Here, they were glorifying God in these other languages. Paul the Apostle goes on in his instruction on the use of the gift, declares that if it is used in a public assembly, then it requires the accompanying gift of the interpretation of tongues uh, in order that everyone might understand what is being said. For if there is no one there who has the gift of interpretation and people are speaking in tongues, Paul said, how are the others who don't understand the language going to say yes, amen, at your giving of thanks if they don't understand what you're saying? Indeed, he said, you do praise God well, but the others aren't benefited. So he is encouraging the limitation of its use in a public assembly, two or at the most three, and only if there is someone there with the gift of interpretation. And if there is no one there with the gift of interpretation, then the person should not give forth an utterance in tongues uh, but he should just speak to himself and to God. But it is addressed to God. It is praise. It can be worship. It can be giving of thanks. It can be just intercessory prayer. Paul said, when I pray in an unknown tongue, my spirit prays, though my understanding is unfruitful. That is, I don't understand what I'm saying. So what shall I say? He said, I will pray with the Spirit, that is, in tongues, and I will pray with understanding also. I will sing with the Spirit, and I will sing with understanding also. So I understand this gift to have its highest use in a person's private devotional life as they are worshiping God, praising God, and as they are praying. Paul the Apostle, in writing to the Romans chapter 8, said that the Spirit also helps our weaknesses because we don't always know how to pray as we should. That is, we always don't know what is the will of God in a particular situation. So how shall I pray for it? If I don't know what is God's will in the matter, I have difficulty praying. So uh, he said the Spirit helps that particular weakness that we have, not always knowing what is the will of God. And he will make intercession with groanings which cannot be uttered. And so uh, it is a, a gift to help you in your personal devotional life, in your prayer life, in your giving of thanks unto God, and that is where the, the gift has its greatest use and expression in a person's own devotional experiences. And Paul definitely limited and discouraged uh, the exercise of the gift in a public assembly, especially if there were sinners present. So the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the church. Now, once the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the church, 
Never again did they wait for the Holy Spirit or tarry for the Holy Spirit. It was given as a gift to the church. And after the initial waiting and the gift given to the church, after that, the Holy Spirit was imparted through the laying on of hands by the apostles or by another disciple or just by the hearing of faith and an open heart and God baptized them or filled them with the Holy Spirit. So uh, you have a, a wide variety of experiences. We'll return with more of our in-depth study of the book of Acts in our next broadcast as Pastor Chuck focuses his attention on the versatility of God. And we do hope you'll make plans to join us. But right now, I'd like to remind you that if you'd like to order a copy of today's message, simply order Acts 1 through 2 when visiting the wordfortoday.org. And while you're there, we encourage you to browse the many additional biblical resources by Pastor Chuck. You can also subscribe to the Word for Today podcast or sign up for our email subscription. Once again, all this can be found at thewordfortoday.org. If you'd like to call, our toll-free number is 1-800-272-WORD. And our office hours are Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Pacific Time. Again, that's 1-800-272-9673. If you prefer to write, our mailing address is The Word for Today, P.O. Box 8000, Costa Mesa, California, 92628. And now, on behalf of The Word for Today, we'd like to thank all of you who share in supporting this ministry with your prayers and financial support. And be sure and join us again next time as Pastor Chuck continues his verse-by-verse study through the Bible. That's right here on the next edition of The Word for Today. And now, once again, here's Pastor Chuck. Father, we give thanks to you for the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit that is available for us today. And Lord, we pray that we might be filled and we pray that we might be baptized and thus overflow with your Holy Spirit, that your love and your power might be manifested through our lives. Lord, make us your instruments through which you can accomplish your work, through which you can reveal yourself to the world around us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This program has been sponsored by Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa, California. Guess what? I just got a new book by Pastor Chuck Smith. What? Pastor Chuck doesn't write books for kids, just big people. Yeah, he does. Hey, I heard about that too. My mom told me about it. It's called The Story of Noah. And not only that, Pastor Chuck even read it to me. Pastor Chuck read you the book? Yep, and he can read it to you too. The Story of Noah is the first of four children's books Pastor Chuck has written for kids three years of age and up. It's never too early to start reading to your children timeless Bible stories filled with exciting facts and practical application for kids taught by Pastor Chuck. And as a gift, 
Each book contains an audio CD of Pastor Chuck actually reading the story of Noah so your kids can read along. To order your copy, call the word for today at 800-272-WORD. Or to see a sneak preview of the story of Noah, also now available as an iBook digital download, you can visit us online at thewordfortoday.org. Again, the number to call 1-800-272-WORD. 